section twenty six of the morals volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. The Morals, Volume 1, by Plutarch. Translated by several hands. Corrected and revised by William W. Goodwin. Concerning the Virtues of Women. Part 2. Example 14 valeria and cloelia the injury done to lucretia and her great virtue were the causes of banishing tarquinius superbus the seventh roman king from romulus she being married to an illustrious man one of the royal race she was ravished by one of tarquin's sons who was in a way of hospitality entertained by her and after she had acquainted her friends and family with the abuse offered her she immediately slew herself tarquinius having fallen from his dominion after many battles that he fought in attempting to regain his kingly government at last prevailed with porsena prince of the etrurians to encamp against rome with a powerful army whereupon the romans being pressed with war and famine at the same time likewise knowing that porsena was not only a great soldier but a just and civil person resolved to refer the matters against tarquinius to him as a judge this proposal tarquinius obstinately refused to consent unto saying that porsena could not be a just arbitrator if he did not remain constant to his military alliance whereupon porsena left him to himself and made it his endeavor to depart a friend to the romans on condition of having restored to him the tracts of land they had cut off from the etrurians and the captives they had taken upon these accepted conditions hostages being given ten male children and ten females among whom was valeria the daughter of publicola the consul he immediately ceased his warlike preparations before the articles of agreement were quite finished now the virgin hostages going down to the river as if they intended only to wash themselves a little further than ordinary from the camp there by the instigation of one of them whose name was cloelia wrapping their garments about their heads they cast themselves into that great river tiber and assisting one another swam through those vast depths with much labor and difficulty there are some who say that cloelia compassing a horse got upon him and passing over gently before the rest swimming after her conducted encouraged and assisted them 
the argument they use for this we shall declare anon as soon as the romans saw the maids had made such a clever escape they admired indeed their fortitude and resolution but did not approve of their return not abiding to be worse in their faith than any one man therefore they charged the maids to return back and sent them away with a safe conduct tarquinius laid wait for them as they passed the river and wanted but little of intercepting the virgins but valeria with three of her household servants made her flight to the camp of porsena and as for the rest aruns porsena's son gave them speedy help and delivered them from the enemies when they were brought porsena looking upon them commanded them to tell him which of them advised and first attempted this enterprise all of them being surprised with fear except cloelia were silent but she said that she was the author of it at which porsena mightily surprised commanded a horse curiously adorned with trappings should be brought which he gave to cloelia and dismissed them all with much generosity and civility and this is the ground which many make of saying that cloelia passed through the river on horseback others deny this story but yet say that porsena admiring the undauntedness and confidence of the maid as being beyond what is commonly in a woman bestowed a present on her becoming a man champion it is certain that there is the statue of a woman on horseback by the side of the sacred way which some say represents cloelia others valeria example fifteen of mica and megisto aristotemus having usurped tyranny over the people of elis in peloponnesus against whom he prevailed by the aid of king antigonus used not his power with any meekness or moderation for he was naturally a savage man and being in servile fear of a band of mixed barbarians who guarded his person and his government he connived at many injurious and cruel things which his subjects suffered at their hands among which was the calamity of philodemus this man had a beautiful daughter whose name was mica this maid one of the tyrant's captains of auxiliaries called lucius attempted to lie with more out of a design to debauch her than for any love he had to her and for this end he sent to fetch her to him the parents verily seeing the strait they were in advised her to go but the maid being of a generous and courageous spirit clasped about her father beseeching him with earnest entreaties that he would rather see her put to death than that her virginity should be filthily and wickedly violated some delay being made 
Lucius himself starts up in the midst of his cups, enraged with wrath and lust and drunk with wine, and finding Mica laying her head on her father's knees, he instantly commanded her to go along with him. But she refusing, he rent off her clothes and whipped her stark naked, she stoutly enduring the smart in silence. When her father and mother perceived that by their tears they could not avail nor bring any succor to her, they turned to imploring the help of both gods and men, as persons that were oppressed by the most cruel and unrighteous proceedings. But this barbarous fellow, drunk and raging every way with madness, ran the maid through as she lay with her face in her father's bosom. Neither was the tyrant affected with these cruelties, but slew many and sent more into exile. For they say eight hundred took their flight into Aetolia, petitioning the tyrant that their wives and children might come to them. A little after he made proclamation, permitting the women that would to go to their husbands, carrying with them all their household goods that they pleased. But when he perceived that all the women received the proclamation with pleasure, for the number was above six hundred, he charged them all to go in great companies on the appointed day, as if he intended to consult for their safety. When the day came, they crowded at the gates with their goods packed up, carrying their children, some in their arms and some in carts, and stayed for one another. All on a sudden many of the tyrant's creatures made towards them in great haste, crying aloud to them to stay, while they were yet at great distance from them. And as they approached, they charged the women to return back. Likewise, turning about their chariots and carts, they forced them upon them, drove the horses through the midst of them without fear or wit, suffering the women neither to follow nor to stay, nor to reach forth any help to the perishing infants, some of whom were killed falling out of the carts, others run over by the carts. So they drove them in, as so many sheep which butchers drive along, hauling and whipping them as they thronged upon one another, till they had crowded them all into a prison, but their goods they returned to Aristotimus. The people of Elis taking these things very heinously, the priestesses devoted to Bacchus, which they call the Sixteen, taking with them their suppliant boughs and wreaths belonging to the service of their god, went to meet Aristotimus in the market-place. The guards, out of a reverential awe, stood off and gave way to their approach. These priestesses stood still at first with silence, solemnly reaching forth their supplicatory rods. But as soon as they appeared as petitioners 
and deprecators of his wrath against the women, he fell into a great rage at the guards, exclaiming against them that they had suffered the priestesses to approach his presence, and he caused some to be thrust away, others to be beaten and dragged through the market-place, and fined them two talents apiece. These things being transacted in this manner, one Hellanicus moved a conspiracy against this tyrant. He was a man who, by reason of old age and the loss of two sons by death, was unsuspected of the tyrant as being altogether unlikely for action. In the meantime, also the exiles waft themselves over from Aetolia and take Amimona, a very convenient place on the borders to entrench a camp in, where they received great numbers of the citizens who made their escape by flight from Elis. Aristotimus, being startled at these things, went in to the imprisoned women, and thinking to work them to his pleasure more by fear than by favour, charged them to send letters to their husbands, enjoining them to depart out of the coasts. If they would not write, he threatened them to slay their children before their eyes, and then put them, the mothers, to death by torments. Whilst he was long provoking and urging them to declare whether they would obey his mandates or not, most of them answered him nothing, but looked with silence one upon another, signifying by nods and gestures that they were not at all affrighted at his threat. But Megisto, the wife of Timocleon, who both in respect of her husband and her own excellent accomplishments carried the port of a princess among them, would not vouchsafe to rise off her seat to him, nor permit the rest so to do. But as she sat, she gave him this answer. Verily, if thou wert a discreet man, thou wouldst not after this manner discourse with women about their husbands, but wouldst send to them as to our lords, finding out better language than that by which thou hast deluded us. But if thou thyself despairest to prevail with them, and therefore undertakest to trepan them by our means, do not hope to put a cheat upon us again. And may they never be guilty of such baseness, that, for the saving their wives and little ones, they will desert that liberty of their native country, for it is not so great a prejudice to them to lose us whom even now they are deprived of, as it will be benefit to set the subjects at liberty from thy cruelty and oppression. Aristotimus, being not able to refrain himself at this speech of Megisto, required that her son should be brought, as if it were to slay him before her eyes. But whilst the officer was seeking out the child, that was in the company of other children playing and wrestling together. His mother called him by his name 
and said, Come hither, my child. Before thou hast any sense and understanding, be thou delivered from bitter tyranny, for it would be much more grievous to me to see thee basely enslaved than to see thee die. At which Aristotemus, drawing his sword upon the mother herself, and transported with rage, was going to fall upon her, when one of his favourites, Culon by name, esteemed his trusty confidant, but in reality a hater of him, and a confederate with Hellanicus in the conspiracy, put a stop to him, and averted him in a humble manner, telling him, This is an ignoble and womanlike carriage, not at all becoming a person of a princely mind and a statesman. Hereupon Aristotemus, scarcely coming to his senses, departed. Now observe what an ominous prodigy happened to him. It was about noon when he was taking some repose, his wife sitting by. And whilst his servants were providing dinner, an eagle was seen in the air floating over the house, which did, as it were, considerately and on purpose, let fall a stone of a handsome bigness upon that part of the roof of the house which was over the apartment where Aristotemus lay. At the same time there was also a great rattling from above, together with an outcry made by the people that were abroad looking upon the bird, upon which Aristotemus, falling into a great consternation and examining the matter, sent and called his soothsayer, which he usually consulted in his public concerns, and being in great perplexity, desired to be satisfied what that prodigy meant. The soothsayer bade him be of good cheer, for it signified that Jupiter now wakened and assisted him. But to the citizens that he could confide in, he said, that vengeance would no longer be delayed from falling on the tyrant's head. Wherefore it was concluded by Hellanicus and his friends not to defer any longer, but to bring matters to an issue the next day. At night Hellanicus imagined in his sleep that he saw one of his dead sons stand by him, saying, What is the matter with thee, O father, that thou sleepest? To-morrow thou shalt be governor of this city. Being animated by his vision, he encouraged the rest concerned with him. Now Aristotemus was informed that Craterus, coming to his aid with great forces, was encamped in Olympia, upon which he became so confidently secure that he ventured to go without his guards into the market-place, Culon only accompanying him. Wherefore Hellanicus, observing this opportunity, did not think good to give the signal to those that were to undertake the enterprise with him, but with a clear voice, and lifting up both his hands, he spake, saying, O ye good men, why do ye delay? 
here is a fair theatre in the midst of your native country for you to contend in for the prize of valour whereupon culone in the first place drawing his sword smote one of aristotimus's waiting gentlemen but thrasybulus and lampis making a brisk opposition aristotimus escaped by flight into the temple of jupiter here slaying him they dragged forth his corpse into the market-place and proclaimed liberty to the citizens neither were the men there much before the women who immediately ran forth with joyful acclamations environing the men and binding triumphant garlands about their heads the multitude presently rushed on upon the tyrant's palace where his wife shutting herself into her bedchamber hanged herself he had also two daughters maidens of most beautiful complexions ripe for marriage those they laid hands on and hailed forth with a desperate resolution to slay them but first to torment and abuse them but megisto with the rest of the women meeting them called out with a loud voice will they perpetrate such enormities who reckon themselves a free people in imitation of the practices of audacious and libidinous tyrants the multitude reverencing the gravity of this matron pleading with them so undauntedly as also affectionately with tears they resolved to lay aside this opprobrious way of proceeding and to cause them to die by their own hands as they were therefore returned into the chamber they required the maids immediately to be their own executioners muro the eldest untying her girdle and tying it about her neck saluted her sister and exhorted her to be careful and do whatever she saw her do lest as she said we come to our death in a base and unworthy manner but the younger desiring it might be her lot to die first she delivered her the girdle saying i did never deny thee anything thou didst ever desire neither will i now take this favour also i am resolved to bear and endure that which is more grievous than death to me to see my most dear sister die before me upon this when she had instructed her sister how to put the girdle so as to strangle her and perceived her dead she took her down and covered her and now the eldest sister whose turn was next besought megisto to take care of her and not suffer her to lie indecently after she was dead so that there was not any one present that was so bitter and vehement a tyrant hater that he did not lament and compassionate these maidens upon their brave and virtuous behavior of the innumerable famous exploits performed by women these examples may suffice but as for their particular virtues 
we will describe them according as they offer themselves scattered here and there not supposing that our present history doth necessarily require an exact order of time example sixteen of pieria some of the ionians who came to dwell at miletus falling into contention with the sons of neleus departed to mius and there took up their situation where they suffered many injuries from the Milesians, for they made war upon them by reason of their revolt from them this war was not indeed without truces or commerce but upon certain festival days the women of mios went to miletus now there was at mios Puthes, a renowned man among them who had a wife called iapigia and a daughter pieria Puthes, when there was a time of feasting and sacrificing to diana among the milesians which they called neleus sent his wife and daughter who desired to participate of the said feast when one of the most potent sons of neleus phrygius by name fell in love with pieria he desired to know what service he could do which might be most acceptable to her she told him that he should bring it to pass that she with many others might have their frequent recourse thither hence phrygius understood that she desired friendship and peace with the citizens of miletus accordingly he finished the war whence arose that great honour and renown of pieria in both cities insomuch that the milesian women do to this day make use of this benediction to new-married wives that their husbands may love them so as phrygius loved pieria example seventeen of polycrita a war arose between the naxians and milesians upon the account of neera the wife of hypsicreon a milesian for she fell in love with promedon a naxian who was hypsicreon's guest promedon lies with his beloved neera and she fearing her husband's displeasure took shipping with her promedon who carried her over into naxos and placed her a supplicant to vesta the naxians not restoring her upon demand for the sake of promedon and making her devotion to vesta their pretense a war arose to the assistance of the milesians came in many others and of the ionians the erythraeans were most ready so that this war was of long continuance and had great calamities attending it but as it was begun by the lewdness of a woman so it was ended by a woman's policy diognetus a colonel of the erythraeans holding a fortification committed to his keeping which was cast up against the naxians 
lying naturally to great advantage and well furnished with ammunition, took great spoils from the Naxians. Yea, he captivated both free married women and virgins, with one of which, called Polycrita, he fell in love, and treated her not as a captive, but after the manner of a married wife. Now a festival coming in turn to be celebrated among the Milesians in the camp, and all of them given to their cups and luxury, Polycrita petitioned Diognetus that he would be pleased to permit her to send some part of the cakes to her brethren. He permitting and bidding her do it, she thrust into a cake a piece of lead engraven with writing, and commanded the bearer to say to her brethren that they alone by themselves should eat up what she had sent. Accordingly they met with the plate of lead, and read Polycrita's handwriting, advising them that night to fall upon their enemies, who, by reason of excess caused by their feastings, were overcome with wine, and therefore in a careless, secure condition. They acquainted the officers with it, and urged them to accompany them forth against the enemies. Upon engagement, the stronghold being gotten and many slain, Polycrita, by entreaty of her countrymen, obtained the life of Diognetus and preserved him. But she, being met by her countrymen at the gate, who received her with acclamations of joy and garlands, and greatly applauded her deed, could not bear the greatness of the joy, but died, falling down at the gate of the citadel, where she was buried. And it is called the sepulchre of envy, as though some envious fortune had grudged Polycrita the fruition of so great honour. And thus do the Naxian writers declare the history. But Aristotle saith that Polycrita was not taken captive, but that by some other way or means Diognetus, seeing her, fell in love with her, and was ready to give and do all that he could for the enjoying her. Polycrita promised to consent to him, provided she might obtain one only thing of him, concerning which, as the philosopher saith, she required an oath of Diognetus. When he had sworn, she required Delium to be delivered up to her, for the stronghold was called Delium. Otherwise she would not yield to go with him. He, being besotted with lust and, for his oath's sake, delivered up the place into the hands of Polycrita, and she to her countrymen. From henceforward they adjusted matters so equally that the Naxians had free converse as they pleased with the Malaysians. Example 18 Of Lampsake There were two brethren, Phobus and Blepsus, twins of the stock of Codrus, natives of Phocaea, of which two, Phobus, the elder, 
threw himself from the Leucadian rocks into the sea, as Charon of Lampsacus hath told us in history. This Phobus, having potency and royal dignity, took a voyage into Parium upon the account of his own private concerns, and becoming a friend and guest to Mandron, king of the Bebricians, the same that were called Pituoessens, he aided and assisted him in the war against those of the bordering inhabitants that molested him. So that when Phobus was returning back by sea, Mandron showed great civility to him, promising to give him a part of his country and city, if he would bring over the Phocaeans and plant them as inhabitants in Pituoessa. Phobus, therefore, persuading his countrymen, sent his brother to conduct them over as planters, and likewise the obligation was performed on Mandron's part according to expectation. But the Phocaeans, taking great booty, prey, and spoils from the neighboring barbarians, were first envied, and afterwards became a terror to the Bebricians, and therefore they desired to be rid of them. As for Mandron, being an honest and righteous person, they could not possess him against the Grecians, but he, taking a long journey, they provided to destroy the Phocaeans by treachery. Mandron had a daughter called Lampsake, a virgin, who was acquainted with the plot, and first she endeavoured to take off her friends and familiars from it, admonishing them what a dreadful and ungodly enterprise they were going upon, to murder men that were benefactors, military auxiliaries, and now citizens. But when she could not prevail with them, she declared to the Grecians secretly what was plotting, and wished them to stand upon their guard. Upon this the Phocaeans provided a sacrifice and feast, and invited the Pituoessens into the suburbs, on which, dividing themselves into two parts, with one they surprised the walls of the city, with the other they slew the men. Thus taking the city, they sent to Mandron, desiring him to join with their own rulers in the government. As for Lampsake, she died of a sickness, and they buried her sumptuously, and called the city Lampsake after her name. But when Mandron, avoiding all suspicion of betraying his people, refused to come to dwell among them, and desired this favour at their hands, that they would send him the wives and children of the deceased. The Phocaeans most readily sent them, offering them no injury at all. And ascribing in the first place heroic renown to Lampsake, in the last place they decreed a sacrifice to her as a goddess, which they continue yearly to offer. Example 19. Aretaphila. 
Aretaphila, a Cyrenaean, was not of ancient time, but lived in the time of the Mithridatic War. She arrived at such a degree of fortitude and experience in council as might be compared with the conduct of any heroic ladies. She was the daughter of Aiglator and the wife of Phidimus, both renowned men. She was a great beauty, excelling in discretion, and was not unacquainted with the most naughty pieces of policy. But the common disasters of her native country rendered her famous. Nicocrates, having then usurped the tyranny over the Cyrenaeans, not only murdered many other citizens, but also assassinated Melanippus, a priest of Apollo, with his own hand, and held the priesthood himself. He slew also Phidimus, the husband of Aretaphila, and married Aretaphila against her will. Unto a thousand other villainies he added this, that he set guards at the gates who mangled the dead corpses as they were carrying forth, pricking them with their daggers and clapping hot irons to them, lest any citizen should be carried out privily under pretense of being a dead corpse. Aretaphila's own proper calamities were very grievous to her, although the tyrant, for the love that he bare to her, suffered her to enjoy a great part of his regal power, for his love had subdued him unto her, and to her alone was he gentle and manageable, being very rude and savage in his behavior to others. But that which troubled her more than other things was to see her miserable country suffering such horrid things in so base a manner, one citizen being slaughtered after another without any hopes of a vindictive justice from any. The exiles also were altogether enfeebled, affrighted, and scattered here and there. Aretaphila, therefore, supposed herself to be the only hope remaining for the state, and, emulating the famous and brave enterprises of Thebe of Ferai, although she was destitute of the faithful friends and helpers which circumstances afforded to Thebe, she laid a plan to dispatch her husband by poison. But in setting herself about it, providing the materials, and trying many experiments with poisons, the matter could not be hid, but was discovered. And there being proof made of the attempt, Calbia, Nicocrates's mother, being naturally of a murdering implacable spirit, presently adjudged Aretaphila to torments and then to death. But love abated the rage of Nicocrates and put him upon delay. And the vigorous manner in which Aretaphila met the accusation and defended herself gave some plausible ground for his hesitation. But when she was convicted by the clearest proofs, and the preparation she had made for the poison was even 
in sight admitting no denial she confessed that she provided poison but not deadly poison but truly o oh sir she said i am contending for matters of great concern no less indeed than the honour and power which by thy gracious favour i reap the fruit of i am maligned by many ill women whose poisons and treacheries i stand in fear of and therefore have been persuaded to contrive something on the other side in my own defence these are haply foolish and woman-like plots but not such as deserve death unless it seem good to thee as judge to take away thy wife's life on account of love potions and charms which she has used because she wishes to be loved by thee more than thou wouldst have her notwithstanding this defence which aretaphila had made for herself nicocrates thought good to commit her to torments and calbia presided in the judicature rigid and inexorable but aretaphila bore up invincibly under her tortures till calbia herself was tired sore against her will but nicocrates being pacified discharged her and was sorry he had tortured her and it was not very long ere he went in again unto her being highly transported with affection renewing his favour towards her with honours and courteous behaviour but she would not be brought under by flattery who had held out so stoutly under tortures and pains and an emulation of victory conjoined with the love of honesty made her betake herself to other measures she had a daughter marriageable an excellent beauty her she presented for a bait to the tyrant's brother a young stripling and lasciviously addicted there was a report that aretaphila used such enchantments and witchcrafts towards the maid that she plainly charmed and destroyed the young man's reason he was called leander after he was entangled he petitioned his brother and accomplished the marriage now the maid being instructed by her mother instigated and persuaded him to set the city at liberty insinuating that he himself could not live long free under an arbitrary government nor could he marry a wife or reserve her to himself also some friends aretaphila's favourites suggested to him continually some accusations or surmises concerning his brother but as soon as he perceived that aretaphila was counselling and aiding in these matters he undertook the business and excited daphnis a household servant who slew nicocrates by his command in what followed he attended not so much to aretaphila but presently manifested by his actions that he was rather 
a fratricide than a tyrannicide, for he managed his affairs perversely and foolishly. But yet he had some honor for Aretephila, and she had some influence with him. Neither did she manage any enmity or open opposition against him, but ordered her affairs privily. First of all, she stirred up an African war against him, and incited Anabus, a certain duke, to invade his borders and approach the city. And then she buzzed into Leander's head suspicions against the favorites and officers, saying that they were not forward to fight, but rather ambitious of peace and tranquillity, which indeed, she said, the state of affairs and the security of his dominion required of him if he would hold his subjects in firm subjection and she would effect a cessation of arms and bring anabus to a parley with him if he would permit it before an incurable war should break forth leander gave her commission first she treated with the african and with the promise of great presents and treasures begged that he would seize leander when he came to treat with him the african was persuaded but leander was backward to it only for the respect that he bore to aretephila who said that she would be present he went unarmed and unguarded but as he came nigh and saw Anabus, he made a halt, and would have waited the coming of his guards. Only Aretephila, being present, sometimes encouraged him, sometimes reviled him. But at last, when he still hesitates, she undauntedly lays hold on him, and dragging him resolutely along, delivers him to the barbarian. He was immediately seized, confined, and bound, and kept prisoner by the African, until Aretephila's friends, with other citizens, procured the treasures promised. Many people acquainted with this ran forth to the parley, and as soon as they saw Aretephila, they were so transported that they had like to have forgot their indignation against the tyrant and reckoned the punishing him of no great concern but the first work after the enjoyment of their liberty was the saluting aretephila between acclamations of joy and weeping and falling down before her as before the statue of one of the gods and the people flocked in one after another so that they scarcely had time that evening to receive leander again and return into the city when they had satisfied themselves in honoring and applauding aretephila they turned themselves to the tyrants and calbia they burnt alive leander they sewed up in a sack and threw him into the sea but they voted that aretephila should bear her share in the government together with the statesmen and be taken into council but she by great sufferings 
having acted a tragicomedy consisting of various parts and at last obtained the reward of the garland as soon as she saw the city set at liberty betook herself to her private apartment and casting off all multiplicity of business she led the rest of her time in spinning and finished her days in tranquillity among her friends and acquaintance end of section 26